Welcome to the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. I'm Dr. Chris Tucker from the Walter Reed National Military Medical Center and the podcast founding editor. Today on the podcast, we are discussing the repair of quadriceps and patellar tendons. I'm excited to be joined for this discussion by a good friend and colleague, Dr. Nate Enders from the Department of Orthopedics and Rehabilitation, Larner College of Medicine at the University of Vermont. Nate was a co-fellow of mine on the 2017 ANA Advanced Arthroscopy Traveling Fellowship and is a veteran of the podcast, having actually hosted one of our very first episodes with Aaron Critch way back in February 2019, when we were just getting started. Dr. Enders was an author on the infographic titled Repair of Quadriceps and Patellar Tendon Tears, which was recently published in the February 2023 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal. His co-authors include Michael Danahar, Scott Fawcett, and Andrew Geeslin. Nate, congrats on your work, and welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. This is yet another high-quality infographic published in the Arthroscopy Journal. And as with most infographics and visual abstracts, it packs a lot of information into a fairly condensed presentation. So let's jump right in and unpack all your details. Can you start us off by describing your approach to the patient with the suspected extensor mechanism injury to the knee? What kinds of physical exam and imaging modalities are you relying on in your evaluation? Yeah, so I think, as always, um, starts with a complete history, quadriceps tendon ruptures. These patients tend to be a little bit older, maybe in middle age. Um, patella tendon rupture patients uh, tend to be a little bit younger, um, but typically... As we know, there's some sort of um, sudden uh, eccentric force um, to the knee. Usually, it's some sort of stumble and fall, slip and fall on the ice, you know, on a boat dock. Uh, sometimes up here, we see them related to skiing injuries. Um, obviously, they can be combined with higher energy injuries, like in a knee dislocation. But I think we're focusing here on the on the isolated uh, extensor mechanism injury. Um, you know, this, the uh, physical exam is usually pretty straightforward, so I'm assessing whether the patient can perform a straight leg raise or not, and then um, palpating for a classic um, defect at the, either the um, distal or proximal pole of the patella. Uh, as far as imaging studies, um, uh, routinely get uh, plain radiographs on, on all of these patients looking for either patella Alta or Baja. Sometimes we'll see small avulsion fractures as well. I, um, you know, if the if the history and the physical examination and the imaging studies are all concordant, I I typically don't get any additional imaging. Uh, but if there's any question, uh, I will uh, sometimes get an MRI. Um, you could also certainly um, obtain an ultrasound, but I typically get an MRI. You know, uh, sometimes we can get into this later, but I think certainly more often than not, um, tears of the quadriceps tendon occur, you know, right right adjacent to the proximal pole. But uh, I think there's sometimes more variability in patella tendon tears. So, you know, if I don't feel that classic defect uh, just distal to the patella, and I think there might be some other type of tear, mid-substance, or even a more distal tear, I might get an MRI just to assess the tear pattern in more detail. Sure. Uh, I think that's a great uh, approach, uh, very systematic. For the vast majority of these complete tendon tears, surgical repair is often indicated. 
and your infographic nicely outlines some of the surgical techniques used for these repairs. Can you first talk us through the options for the primary quadriceps tendon repair, including some of the advantages or disadvantages of each, and how you're approaching in your practice the preoperative planning and intraoperative decision-making for these quad tendons? Yeah, uh, so the two the two main approaches are either the um, classic transosseous repair with, with drill holes longitudinally in the patella. Um, I think the advantage of that advantages of that technique are that it's it's pretty straightforward. Um, it's uh, uh, probably less expensive than the suture anchor technique, if that's a consideration. And um, you can you can um, really make really small drill holes um, in the patella if that's a concern. Um, and it works. It works clinically. Uh, so it sort of stood the test of time. Um, but um, uh, suture anchor techniques have become more popular. Um, the potential advantages are um, there's some biomechanical data to show that there's less gapping with cyclical loading. Um, not necessarily better clinical outcomes, but uh, better biomechanical data. And it, you can make a smaller incision because you don't need to expose the entire patella. Um, so um, in my practice, um, when I first started and uh, I and in my training, um, I did the transosseous repair pretty much exclusively, but um, uh, eventually um, changed to the suture anchor technique, in fact, a knotless technique. And uh, I've been really happy with that technique and, and haven't gone back. Um, so, uh, yeah, in, in terms of preoperative planning, um, I just make sure I have sort of all the equipment I might need for any type of repair um, in, in case I needed to convert to a different technique. Um, sometimes I'll have, you know, have a, um, a patch augmentation um, product available in case I might want to use it or some allograft. Uh, but pretty much just make sure I have all the all the necessary implants for any technique just in case I come across something unexpected. Yeah, very nice summary, Nate. Thanks. And while it's similar, I think, as you had alluded to earlier, there are some differences with the patellar tendon repair. Can you walk us through the options for the patellar tendon repair now and your approach to that injury? And if there's any other additional factors you consider when you're doing those versus quad repairs? Yeah, so the 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 at least for the classic avulsion from bone or adjacent to bone, I should say, um, the techniques are the same, meaning transosseous versus suture anchor. But as I alluded to earlier, I feel like there's sometimes a bit more variability in the tear pattern, and sometimes patella tendon tears can can be somewhat complex, and so. Um, you may see mid-substance ruptures, which could be repaired sort of end-to-end -end with sometimes just sutures, maybe aug augmented with a cerclage technique or, or uh, um, even potentially a patch or allograft. And then, you know, even um, distal, distal avulsions, which could, can still be fixed with suture anchors or through drill holes. Um, so I think uh, just be prepared uh, for the potential to see more more variability with the patella tendon tears. I have seen 
um, some tears of the quadriceps tendon um, that uh, where there was still a, a decent stump of tissue uh, left at the uh, proximal pole and, and have done tendon to tendon repairs of the quad tendon, but that that's pretty pretty uncommon in, in my experience, much more common with the patella tendon tears. I was just going to add, I think that the, the tissue um, of the patella tendon sometimes is less robust um, and uh, just just thinner and, and, and um, more wispy and sometimes sort of more more shredded than, than the quadriceps tendon. So um, that can be a factor for fixation as well. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. I've seen that experience as well. And I, I agree. I think there's some more variability in the patellar tendon than the quadriceps. I have had some of those delaminations of the quad where you've got a stump left, but it may be partial thickness and then avulsion of a partial thickness. And so you're kind of, you know, doing some tendon to bone fixation, but also kind of an overlap of the remaining tendon on top of it as kind of an augment. Um, I think there's a lot yeah. of variability. And your point is very valid to kind of always have plan A, B, C, and D, you know, both, uh, you know, conceptually, but also equipment wise to kind of ready to pull back, you reach into your kit bag and be ready to fix kind of the odd ball. So your infographic yeah. nicely goes beyond these simple primary repairs and you outlined some advanced techniques that are either augmenting or supplementing a straightforward repair. I was hoping you could maybe talk a little bit more about each of those. I'd like to hear about both the augmented surgical technique, like you mentioned, the cerclage or the suture wire, um, but also the biological augments with either collagen or allograft patches. Um, what are your considerations there and what kinds of stuff's out there for us to use? Yeah, so um, I have some experience with the cerclage technique. Um, so that that entails, uh, there's, there's variations, but that entails um, uh, placing a, a, a cerclage from the quadriceps tendon through the through the retinaculum and then often through a drill hole in, in the tubercle. Um, and that can be done with wire or, um, or heavy uh, high strength suture, like a number five or number two. And the idea obviously is to uh, protect the repair, um, particularly in early flexion. Um, and so I don't do that routinely, um, but have, have done that in, uh, cases where I'm concerned about uh, uh, healing, whether that's because of um, just soft tissue quality or maybe underlying patient factors, metabolic disease, diabetes, and so forth. So I think that's a, that's a helpful technique. It's very straightforward, very simple, um, and may uh, protect the repair um, early on. Uh, as far as the uh, other augments. Um, typically, I've used those for um, revisions or chronic cases, um, but those involve, as you mentioned, maybe bioinductive patches and and um, and allograft, um, maybe with or without uh, additional biologic augmentation. And um, you know, I certainly think there is a role for those. Again, in those in those patients where you're maybe really concerned about um, healing capability because of underlying uh, risk factors, or in the setting of of a revision or a chronic case. Yeah, those are great considerations. Um, 
you know, you mentioned earlier the common mechanism is this kind of violent eccentric contraction loading to the knee or the extensor mechanism. And I think that's what we see in kind of the younger or, you know, weekend warrior injuries. But there's another subset of people at risk for these tendon ruptures, which we all are familiar with, um, you know, anabolic steroid users or fluoroquinolone antibiotic exposure. Do you take that into consideration if you find those out on your history? And are you leaning more towards doing some sort of biologic augment for those patients in general, just because their potential kind of decreased healing capacity? Yeah, yeah. If I'm, if I'm really concerned about healing capacity, I would definitely factor that into the to the repair strategy. Um, you know, I think that's uh, that may for one thing that may be that I, I pretty much exclusively do suture anchor repairs at this point. But if you're on the fence between the two, given the biomechanical data, um, I might that might push me more towards a suture anchor repair. Um, and I would be, I'd have a low threshold to add some sort of augment, whether it be a surclage, whether it be a patch, maybe both. And I'd, and I'd be more conservative with the rehab protocol. Sure. You know, I, I wanted to discuss the rehab uh, in a moment, but, you know, one kind of side note, I uh, had some experience with complications from suture anchors in the patellar tendon, which like you, I had adopted that technique years ago. Um, and both in older patients who have some decreased bone mineral density, there can be concerns with the pullout strength, but also with some young patients who, you know, I had a case report that we published in JBJS on a stress fracture from an absorbable suture anchor that a patient of ours had returned to such high level activity with repetitive stress on the knee, he had actually gone to complete a stress fracture that required ORIF through the kind of resultant hole in his patella. So, you know, I think all these tools are excellent and at our disposal and they all have their pluses and minuses, but, you know, I don't think there's a perfect tool for every situation, but I love all the, yeah. uh, I love all the things that you outline to consider. I think the infographic does a great job of kind of visually summarizing and showing what, what the positives, negatives and, and uh, options are. Yeah, I would I would agree, and it, you know, if I might add a few few technical tips and tricks, um, you know, I think um, I like to do these on an elevated bone foam ramp. I think that's that's helpful just to have the operative leg elevated with respect to the non-operative side. I don't typically use X-ray, but that would also make it much easier to to do X-ray. Certainly, like you know, I would advise appropriate exposure as always. It's nice to be able to do these through a smaller incision, but you really, obviously, the the the, the key is to get a good, robust repair. Um, but um, I think uh, if you're when you're you know placing your your Krakow suture or tape, you want to make sure there's obviously no gapping in the system um, that could lead to some gapping at the repair site. And then if you you taught me this, if you're using anchors, obviously for the most part the bone of the patella is very hard. And so you really want to make sure that you tap um, your holes for the anchor appropriately um, with the right size tap. I think you, you told me about a case where the tap got stuck and was hard to get out. So make sure you have all the right tools and you tap to the appropriate depth because 
you what you, you don't you want don't want to make sure you're in a situation where you're placing the anchor um and it's proud um and uh and now you've got uh you know tendon trying to heal to anchor as opposed to bone and um also i would say be real meticulous about preparation of of the patellar surface i spend a lot of time taking down any residual soft tissue um, and preparing the bone to a nice bleeding surface. And finally, after you've done the repair, I would encourage testing it intraoperatively, at least to some degree, because if there's any sort of problem, gapping, suture comes loose, uh, you want to know about that, obviously, then so you can deal with it intraoperatively as opposed to you know later on at one of the post-op visits. So those would be a few tips and tricks I might add. Yeah, those are wonderful tips. Thanks, Nate. Uh, yeah, that tap issue, I learned the hardware, hard way. I was using an anchor that was a screw-in type anchor, and um, I learned you know, to drill, and then I actually used two different taps where I went with a small one first, then upsized yep. to a larger tap, and then the final anchor, because um, you're right, the density of the patella in a really you know young, active person can be quite dense. Um, and then yeah. second, you know, second tip for me, at least for doing transosseous suturing is to avoid tying over the tendon. So if you're doing a quad tendon repair and you're passing your sutures inferiorly, you're obviously not going to want to tie over the patellar tendon and strangulate it. So, you know, we've used techniques where we use like an angiocath suture uh, needle yeah. and we pass the angiocath you know, from lateral to midline, retrieve the suture and pull it out laterally and then tie the knots you know, away from the patellar tendon so they don't have that knot prominence where they potentially might be kneeling or even develop some peritendinitis, you know, symptoms. So, um, yeah, yeah, lots of tips and tricks. Totally the way. Yeah. And then I, and then obviously, you know, after your, your tendon is repaired, you want to make sure that you do a really robust, um, retinacular repair as well. I think that's really helpful. Absolutely. So, can you talk to us about your post-operative management and rehabilitation of these patients and how the biomechanical strength of your repair and the desired level of the functional return for your patient factors into your post-op course? Yeah. So um, the patients are placed into a locked hinge brace um, upon discharge. I allow them to weight bear as tolerated um, with crutches initially. With, but, but the brace is locked in extension. Um, I think the real question is when to start range of motion. Um, when I first started, I was very conservative and followed a very old school protocol uh, and didn't, didn't start really any range of motion for six weeks. And, and believe it or not, um, that tended to work out fine. Um, patients, probably took longer to get their flexion back, but I really long-term didn't see any major problems with stiffness. Um, but that being said, I think particularly with, with the conversion to suture anchor repairs, which seem uh, really, really robust, um, I've, I've started earlier range of motion. I haven't generally started right away. Um, usually I wait three weeks and then start a progressive range of motion protocol with a goal of having at least 90 degrees of flexion by six weeks and then and then unrestricted after that. Although what sort of sold me was, um, you know, one or two 
less compliant patients, shall we say, um, who who had suture anchor repairs and came in, you know, early on, and uh, and were just were, were moving on their own, and um, you know, with very little pain and and um, uh, intact straight leg raise. And so I think I think uh, you can probably be pretty aggressive, especially in the younger, healthier patients. Um, if you feel like you got a really robust repair and you've tested it intraoperatively, I think you can you can be more aggressive with early range of motion. But I typically still wait a few weeks. Yeah, great. I uh, tend to follow probably a similar plan you do. I always make sure to note intraoperatively when I flex them, kind of what angle flexion I can get them yeah. to before I see some gapping. Or if I get them all the way to 90 with no gapping, I usually stop there. And then I'll work closely yeah. with my therapist afterwards to kind of let them know, you know, hey, I got this uh, young lady down to 45 degrees or, you know, hey, I got this weightlifter to 90 degrees, you know, and then that can help them guide their physical therapy restrictions as well. But yeah. I think the immediate yeah. weight and extension is very well tolerated with a brace and avoiding the slip in the shower or the fall down the stairs. I think, you know, those are, you know, usually going to contribute to catastrophic failure. But I think, like you said, the strength of these constructs now can tolerate some uh, earlier range of motion and even some non-compliance like you alluded to. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think it's much like, for me, it's much like, or similar to rotator cuff repairs in that the rehab is somewhat tailored to the individual. So if it's a patient who's uh, maybe uh, not as healthy, doesn't have as robust tissue, then I may hold off and be less, more conservative. If it's a younger patient with awesome tissue and just a super solid repair, and like you said, you know, you can flex them to 90 with no gapping and you got to it nice and early, um, then, I, then I will be more aggressive. As with your infographic, I think you provided us a wonderful and succinct summary of the currently available data out there on quadricep and patellar tendon repairs. Do you have any other closing remarks, Nate, before we wrap up? Well, thank you for inviting me. Uh, second, I'd like to thank my co-authors, uh, Mike Danaher, who's one of our residents, who is going to be a sports fellow, uh, Scott Fawcett and Andy Giesland. Um, I, I think what I would add, it's obviously just really helpful to know about these injuries as early as possible. Um, so um, if you work with residents, you know, just asking them to let you know uh, as soon as possible if they come across uh, one of these injuries uh, in the ER so you can start to plan. It's obviously much easier to deal with these early. Um, and if you don't work with residents, I think it's worth um, a discussion with ER staff at your local hospital or uh, schedulers in your office, uh, maybe um, mid-level providers who may see these injuries to just make them aware. I think, you know, these injuries are, are, are quite well recognized, I think, for the most part. If I might digress just a little bit, I think uh, where, I've, where I've seen still more some delays in recognition and treatment is with um, proximal hamstring ruptures. Um, and uh, I think those are, are being increasingly recognized as, as acute surgical problems, but I, I still see uh, enough of them presenting on a, a delayed basis that, that I think there's still some, some education, an education component that we can improve upon with uh, our non-surgical colleagues. So I guess that would be for anyone listening, maybe who's you know, newer in practice or going into practice, I think it's 
it's just worth having these conversations so you can find out about these early and deal with them appropriately. Yeah, I think that's great advice for practice management that can lead to better care, earlier care for our patients. Uh, Nate, it's always good to catch up with you. I always learn something every time I get to listen to you talk. Um, I want to congratulate you again on your work with this infographic and uh, everything you're doing up at University of Vermont and just say thanks for sharing your time and your thoughts with all of us today. Yeah, thanks so much, Chris. This is fantastic. Dr. Ender's infographic titled Repair of Quadriceps and Patellar Tendon Tears is currently available in the February 2023 issue of the Arthroscopy Journal, which is available online at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. This concludes this edition of the Arthroscopy Journal podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next time.